as you can see here in the front, uh, we have our communion uh, emblems ready for today. So after today's uh, sermon, we will look uh, to the Lord's communion and celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, here together at the end of service. All right, well, once again, I'm so happy to see all of you here today. Uh, happy to see, like, Santosh, who is now, where did he go? Maybe in the back already. Santosh is back from India, uh, and, and he looks a lot meatier than he was before. So I think it's a good thing when some of you get to go home and experience your home food again, we see the, uh, the difference it makes uh, when you come back. But it's good to see Santosh again. It's good to have him back in the ministry already on the platform singing with us. And we're certainly thankful for him. And it's good to have Ina uh, with us in church here today. Uh, we do not stop praying for Ina's father for full recovery. And uh, we can just continue to pray uh, and surround Ina with our prayers. And good to have Rowena and family here with us today. It's good to see all of you. With that, here we are in God's house. So let's open up the word of God today to the book of Hebrews. Last week we started in chapter 12. We read through verses 1 to, to 3, and we learned about the race that we're all in, and I pray that that was a blessing for you last week. Today we're going to look at verse 4 to 13, and we're going to learn something about God today that, I don't know, maybe we don't think about very much, but it's certainly true. We'll read about it today, and I, I do hope that it's a great encouragement to you. As I've said before, so many sermons that are preached from Hebrews, it's nothing but encouragement. And I'm so glad the way that the Spirit of God encourages us in this world, in this life that we live, I'm so happy for how He speaks to us in the ways that He does. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Find verse 4. Stand with me. And I'm going to read from verse 4 to verse 13. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, indeed, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your uh, feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. Today's sermon is titled, For Whom the Lord Loves. There's a quote in chapter 12 in the verses that we just read. The, the writer quotes Proverbs chapter 3. And it's within those verses of Proverbs uh, in what we just read where we find the words, for whom the Lord loves. The last time I went to America, last uh, October, November time, I got to see my whole family, my father especially, and my father getting older in life and now struggling through Parkinson's and in the past he's had strokes and you can see how it wears on the physical body. His mind is still sharp, still has a great sense of humor, but in the body, physically, you can see the toll that it takes. And so today my father needs help going from the house to the car and, and usually just taking him by the arm 
and leading him slowly to the car is what's necessary. I remember the last night we were in America just before coming here back in November, and I was leading my dad out to the car saying goodbye uh, till next time. And when, he, when I went to reach out my arm to take his arm, instead he took his hand and he took my hand. And when I held my father's hand, it's just a flood of memories came into my mind, holding that hand. It's an older hand now. It's a, perhaps maybe a weaker hand, a smaller hand. Nevertheless, it's the hand of my father. And it brought back memories, such as this one. When I was a young boy, I remember looking at my father, and to me, it just seemed to me he had big hands. That's just how I remember. He had big, strong hands. And with my father's hand, he could inflict pain <laughs> if he chose, or he could also touch with great affection and love. And I remember when I was about 10 years old, I had just entered into the fifth grade in school, and I wasn't a good student. I don't know what was happening to me at the age of 10. I was hanging out with the wrong people. I was speaking bad language. I was getting involved with, with nonsense. I was getting into fights, and I was not doing my homework, not studying, and I was failing. And so the day came where the teacher knew this has to be more than a phone call home. This has to be more than a, a letter. I need to meet your father. And so the fear struck my heart when I saw dad coming into my classroom because we needed to have a family conference. And while it was my father and I sitting together with the teacher, and she began to list all the things I have been doing. And my dad had no idea some of these things were happening. I was a horrible student, getting into fights, bad language, disrespectful, and he learned a lot in that conference. And I remember when it was all finished, we went into the car to go home, and I sat on the driver's side, and as soon as I shut the door, that hand came from across the other side of the car, and it slapped my leg quite a few times. And I'll never forget that. And he yelled at me and, and all the other things that went along with that, that chastisement. And, you know, I did what probably many of us do when we're spanked, when we're kids. We, we want to cry. We have to cry, but we want to hold it back. And so you're, you're, you're biting your lip. You don't want to let it out. And the whole drive home, which is about 45 minutes of a drive, I'm staring out the window. I'm not saying anything. I'm biting my lips because I don't want to just cry in front of my father. My leg is burning from the slaps. And it was just a painful moment. And then all of a sudden, we were at a traffic light. And I felt the same hand that just inflicted that pain. Same hand touched me on my shoulder. And he said, Heath, you know I love you, right? And the tears just came falling out of my eyes. I said, yes, Dad, I know. And I leaned over in the car and I hugged him. And he drove the rest of the way home with me hugging him around his, around his, his chest area here. I know my father loved me. I know my father has always loved me. In fact, even in the discipline, I've always known my father loves me. Therefore, he disciplines me. There was no question in my mind why my dad did that. It's because he cares for me. He loves me. He wants what's best for me. He wants to correct the bad behavior, the bad attitude. And so for a parent to teach their children, it comes through discipline. And that's not just me telling you, that's the Word of God speaking. We must learn to discipline our children. My dad's hand was a hand of correction, and it was a hand of love. In the book of Hebrews, what we just read, for whom the Lord loves, it seems as though from the moment we begin, something is going on with the, the readers of this letter, the Hebrew people the Jews who just became Christian. Because here in the very first verse, he says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Well, what does that mean? You haven't resisted uh, to bloodshed. Do you know, just a few verses before, it says that Jesus endured. He endured suffering. He endured the mockings and the beatings. 
He endured even being crucified on a cross. He shed His blood in that endurance. Something seems to be going on with these Christians. They have not been faithful, at least yet, unto death itself. In fact, it seems as though they don't want to die, and because of that, they're compromising their faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, we've talked about this many times. These Hebrew Christians, they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. Forsake this Jesus and this faith. Go back to the temple and offer the sacrifices. And because they chose to follow Christ, their families have kicked them out. Society has rejected them. They're no longer allowed in the synagogue. Their way of life is changed forever. And so there seems to be this temptation to give up this faith and to go back. These Hebrew Christians, they are discouraged. And not only that, in what we've read, they've already been rebuked. Because the writer says to them that they're not really digging into the Word of God. They still need milk because they're immature Christians. They're not growing. They're not pursuing the Lord. They're not digging into the Word of God and following what it says. And so all these things are taking place and it seems as though the temptation to compromise has come. And they begin to back away from the Lord Jesus. And the warning of Hebrews says, do not back away. You have to keep going. And so, with all of this, it seems as though if they're struggling now because their families don't, love, don't want to be with them anymore, if they're struggling because society has kicked them out, what's going to happen when the day comes where their very lives are threatened? Threatened with martyrdom. What will they do then? If you can't remain faithful now, What's going to happen when your life is threatened? And so there's a need right now to build the faith of these people. They need to grow in faith. Their commitment needs to be growing. Their faith needs to grow. And they need to continue to walk in faith in Jesus Christ. So how does God do such things? How does God grow the faith of His people? Teach them. Help them to to stay on the correct path that He has for them. How does God do this? Well, we learn in the verses that we just read, God uses chastisement and discipline. Chastisement, discipline. In the Bible, it's called the chastening of the Lord. And so today, we're going to look at for whom the Lord loves. Number one, He chastens Number two, he cherishes. Number three, he cheers. But before we begin at all with chastisement, you have to remember this. It's for whom the Lord loves. Not for whom the Lord hates. Not for whom the Lord is ready to pour his wrath upon. Not for whom the Lord is just tired of, impatient with, finished with. No. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. How many of you would say, God loves me? Amen? So do you know what you can expect in life? Chastisement and discipline. So don't forget, no matter what is said here today, don't ever forget, all of this is because God loves His people. Amen. Number one. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. The readers of this letter, they need to be reminded of an ancient Scripture verse that comes back many, many, many centuries before. And even though it comes from ancient days, it is a timeless encouragement. And it lasts forever. Even though it's from the ancient past, it's still relevant to us today. It's something that was true for King David. It was true for Solomon. It's still true for us today. From the book of Proverbs, here is the quote. It's quoting Solomon speaking to his son. And he's teaching his son what he learned from his father David. 
He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. Do you notice a word that's repeated three times in those verses? It's the word son. God is speaking to you as a son or as a daughter, as a child of God. God's dealings with you are His dealings as a father does for a child. We are sons and daughters of God. And do you remember how that happened? Do you remember how we became children of God? Gospel of John says to us, for all who have received Jesus, He has given them the right to become sons or children of God. Today, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, He has brought you into the family of God. And God looks upon you as His own child. If that's not quite enough for you, then in the book of Romans, chapter 8, it says that now we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. Don't ever forget when God deals with you and He deals with us in different ways. What He does for Josephine may not be exactly what He does for Brother Henry. What He does for Brother Ronald may not do for me. Nevertheless, we are sons and daughters of God. And He deals with us as His own children. And that's our encouragement today. Not just a father to us, but a loving father to us all. And through that love, He disciplines. Now I know today, in fact maybe over the last few decades, there's been a new idea brought forth by professors and psychologists that recommend don't ever discipline your kids. Don't spank them. Don't ever do something like that because you're going to hurt them with that. You're going to hurt them emotionally, mentally, and socially. Don't spank the kids is what the world says today. Not according to God. The world says today that parents shouldn't discipline their children. That if a parent does discipline their children, in fact, parents are worried about this all the time. And maybe some of you parents get worried about this. If I discipline my child, will my child think I do it because I don't love them? Will my child think that I'm just an angry person and I just like to punish them for the things that I don't like? Will they think that about me? Maybe you've asked yourself that kind of question before. Parents will often be afraid to discipline their children for fear that the children will not think their parents love them. But the truth is, the reason why a parent disciplines is because a parent loves. Amen? It's the exact opposite. In fact, you know, in the Bible, the Bible in the book of Proverbs talks about a parent who refuses to discipline their children refuses to bring the, the rod of correction upon their child. And according to God, the parent who refuses to discipline their child, that parent hates the child. Well, that's not what the world says. So who do we listen to? The wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? And again, God will chastise us not because He hates us, but because He loves us. Some others say, well, I don't want to believe in the God of the Old Testament because He seems like an angry God. I mean, beating us with rods, chastising us, that sounds like Old Testament God, so we're going to ignore Old Testament God and we're going to just believe in the New Testament God, Jesus Christ, because He's all about love and mercy and compassion. Well, if you want to think that way, well then let's take a quote from Jesus. Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous 
and repent. Why does Jesus rebuke us? Why does he chasten us? He says it right here. It's because I love you. And I know what's best for you. And I don't want you to live life in sin, making the same mistakes over and over again. I have an abundant life for you. And so many times, to take us to the life we're currently living, into that abundant life, it takes discipline and the chastening of the Lord. Verse 7 and 8 in Hebrews says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So the picture here is, if a grown-up does not discipline a child, then we can assume that that child is not this adult's child. In other words, if, if you're like me, you go out to a restaurant right here in the city, a nice evening with your wife perhaps or with a family, a nice quiet evening at the restaurant, but there's always that one family who brings all their kids and those kids are running everywhere, jumping over the chairs, jumping onto the tables, shouting, screaming, running around in circles. And what do the parents do at the same time? Oh, they're on their phone. They're not even paying attention to what's going on. They're oblivious. And if you're like me, you say to your spouse or to your family, if that was my kid, you ever do that? If that was my kid, oh, I would do to them what my father used to do to me. We go to a restaurant. In fact, my father learned, never take children to a restaurant. Take them to McDonald's, because that's where they can act like kids. All right, you can do that in McDonald's. Don't take, take them to the, the family restaurants where it's supposed to be nice and quiet. So my dad took us often to McDonald's, Burger King, all those kinds of places. But here's what my dad would do. If we were in a restaurant and we're yelling, screaming, running around, not sitting down, not eating our food, all my dad had to ask was this. Heath, you want to go to the bathroom? <gasps> no. Because you know what that meant? Anybody knows what happens in the bathroom with dad? Spanking time in the bathroom. And all my dad, I, I only had to go through that once or twice. After that, I'm cutting up at dinner. Heath, hey, 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 Heath. You want to go to the bathroom? <gasps> no, dad, I don't, please. And I would be quiet the rest of the dinner. If those were my kids, I would take them into the bathroom right now and you know what I... You ever do that before? No, not you. I guess it's only me. But do you know why I don't go to some kid, pick them up and start spanking them? You know why? Because it's not my child and it's not my responsibility. I have no right to go to a child that does not belong to me and discipline that child. That's the job of the parents. Likewise... If you are not being disciplined by God, what do you suppose that means? You ever hear a Christian say, you know what? I've never really felt the discipline of God in my life. I've never felt chastisement. I do a lot of wrong things. In fact, I'm doing it right now. But I feel like God doesn't really mind. He hasn't chastised me. I haven't paid the price for it. So I guess God's okay with what I'm doing. I don't know if you've ever heard a Christian say something like that, but if they did, I would almost be positive to say, you may not be a Christian. You may not actually be a child of God. Because God the Father does not let us get away with doing those kinds of things. And if you're not being chastised by God in life, according to the Bible, it's because you are illegitimate not even a son of God. The correction of the Lord, remember this. The correction of the Lord's hand is controlled and it is measured by the love of the Lord's heart. Remember this. The correction of the Lord's hand is always, always, measured, always controlled by the love 
that's in his heart for you. And what he does in our life is because of that, because of love. So, have you been or are you going through right now the chastisement of the Lord? If so, how would you know? How would you know if you're currently under God's chastisement? How would you know and why? What are the reasons why we may go through God's discipline in life? Well, that brings us to number two. For whom the Lord loves, he cherishes. Now, love and cherish are not the same thing. For whom the Lord loves, he cherishes. We know what love is, but cherishing something. Cherish means this thing that I say that I love. Cherish means I'm going to take care. I'm going to cultivate. I'm going to produce something wonderful out of this. That's what cherish means. And God who loves you, he cherishes you. I love flowers and plants. And I love it when our home, the landscaping of the home, is filled with plants and all kinds of colors of flowers. I love flowers and plants. And I love it when my yard is decorated with it. However, I do not cherish flowers. And I don't cherish plants. Because I don't feel like taking the time to prune them, to cultivate them, to stir up the ground, to pull the weeds out. I don't want to do that. I love the flowers and they look great, but I don't cherish them. I'm not looking to produce something and cultivate something out of it. The Lord looks at you and says, I love you and I cherish you. I am going to produce something out of you. I'm going to cultivate something out of your life and produce something that's beautiful. Verse 9 says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect, like I did when I would hear, Heath, you want to go to the bathroom? Shall we not much more readily then be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So if my father's punishment, if his chastisement in my life causes me to greatly respect him so that the next time he tells me to do something, I'm not going to say why, I'm not going to say no, I'm not going to say I'll do it later or have somebody else do it. I'll say, yes, dad, I'll do it because I respect him. That comes through discipline. And if we learn to do that with our own fathers here in this world, then how much more do we need to learn to respect the God of eternal life? God, not only of this world that we live in, but God of spirits. God who has our eternity in his hands. How much more do we need to respect him and revere him? And the Bible says that if we do, if we learn to listen, learn to obey, learn to fear the Lord, we will learn what it's like to truly live. Live. You know the life that Jesus says he came to bring? That life that's more abundant? That eternal life? You experience all the abundance of life when you learn to respect and to fear the Lord. To know that he is God and you are the creation of God. Dad, a dad, has the right to discipline. And he has that right because he's in charge. He has authority over his son or daughter. And we respect him because of the position that he's in. And so how much more do we need to respect God? Amen. Verse 10. For they, fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit. In other words, the idea here is that oftentimes, let's go back to the restaurant, oftentimes a parent will correct their child quickly because he knows that when my child is screaming and running around and acting up, everybody else sees it and everybody else is bothered by it and what an embarrassment this is to us. So I'm going to deal with it right now 
to save myself any more embarrassment of what my kid is doing. The idea here is that they do what they do, fathers, for what's best for them. And so many times a father, to keep from embarrassment or shame, will quickly chastise their child. You know, in the Old Testament, boy, in the, in the Old Testament, when a, when a son disrespected his dad, and he did it in public, and brought embarrassment to the father, that child was stoned in public. <laughs> and so, we have here fathers who may discipline us, maybe due to embarrassment. But when it says the Father disciplines us, God the Father, He doesn't do it because He's embarrassed of you. Never that. He chastises you for you. Not for Himself, but for you. For your own good. For your own profit. He's doing it all for you. And it may not seem like it in the beginning. It may not be fun. You may not figure out that God is doing this all for, the, all for you. But when He does, and it's all for you, He does it so that you may partake in His holiness. That's what the Bible says. You see, God the Father has a plan for your life. Whoever you are, man or woman, young or old, His plan for your life when you become His child is to mold you into the image of his son, Jesus. So that the character that you find in Christ will be the character that's found in you. And this is what God does for you. And he teaches you to listen, to obey. God is a holy God. And the next time we go into the book of Hebrews, we're going to learn that we are to be holy because God is holy. And God teaches us how to be holy through discipline. And so let me share a couple of stories about my own personal life. When I was younger and when I was older, and how God chastised me to teach me to do what's right. When I was in huh, the 10th grade, here we go again. Oh no, the, in, in, the, in the fifth grade, I was 10 years old, here we go again. In that grade, I remember one day I was on my way home on the bus. In America, we ride the bus, the big yellow bus back and forth to school. I got on the bus, I sat in the back where I usually would sit, and when I got into my seat, on the floor was a brand new backpack. It wasn't mine, somebody else's. And it was leather. And on the inside it was suede. And I picked it up and there was a, a few papers in, in it, and I thought, wow, this is, this is a nice backpack. Somebody spent a lot of money for this backpack. I would like to have this backpack. I think I'm going to keep it. And so I rolled up the backpack, and I put it in mine, zipped it up, and I put it over my shoulder. And when, our, when the bus came to my neighborhood, I got off the bus, walking home with my new backpack. And when I got into the house, of course, I didn't tell anybody. I thought, I'll wait a little while, and I don't know what I'll say then, but I'll make up some reason why I've got an expensive backpack with me. But at least for now, I'm going to hide it, not talk about it. So I took it, I think I put it into one of my dresser drawers, all done. I got a new backpack. And then I went to bed that night. And no lie, I'll never forget this. I didn't sleep at all that night. The moment I laid down feeling good about what I did, the moment I had a vision in my mind, and I don't know if this was a real vision or not, but I felt like the Lord put it into my mind. And in my mind, I saw a young boy just like me going home to his father. His father who just bought him a brand new expensive backpack. And this boy walking to the house crying and saying, Dad, I lost the backpack you bought for me. And when I had that in my mind, I thought, what if I came to my father and said those words? And I just started to cry. Overwhelmingly cry. I was sobbing in my bed and I couldn't believe what I had done. I felt so guilty, so convicted, the fact that I would do such a thing. How dare I do that? And for a couple of hours, I just kept running that vision in my mind and crying. And I began to ask the Lord to forgive me. Forgive me, God. And then finally I said, okay, God, tomorrow I'm bringing this thing back. I don't want it in my house anymore. 
And when I, when I thought of that, I, I had a new vision in my mind of the boy running home, smiling, shouting, Dad, look, I have my backpack again. And only then could I rest in my bed quietly and no more sobbing. But all night long, the Lord would not leave me alone with what I did. And so the next day, I took that backpack. I didn't tell my parents about it. I didn't tell anybody about it. In fact, you may be the first to ever hear of this story. I brought the backpack onto the bus, and I said, Mr. Bus Driver, I found this backpack yesterday in the very back seat. I don't know who it belongs to, but can you hang on to it? He said, you know what? There's another school I pick up after you, so I'll ask. And so I didn't think anything more of it. Went through the day of school, got back on the bus later that afternoon, and the bus driver said, Heath, thank goodness. There's a boy that goes to another school that I drive in the morning. It was his backpack. He lost it, and I gave it back to him, and he was so happy, and he told me to tell you, thank you for finding his backpack. I never, I was 10 years old, never, ever did I ever steal something from someone again. Never again. I don't ever want that chastising hand to be upon me again. But it doesn't mean I'm perfect. Because when I got older, the Lord had to teach me another lesson. This time, I was married. I was married and I had a couple of kids. We had a home, mortgage payment. We had cars, car payment. I had a, a good job and, you know, other payments, other things that we had to, to take care of in our life. And for whatever reason, I was working for a bank, and I don't know how this began, but something in me said, you know what? I'm a banker. Yeah, I'm a hotshot banker. And as a banker, I don't want to keep driving our family minivan around. That's not what a banker does. A banker has a nice-looking car. What kind of car? The only car I can think of, BMW. It's got to be a BMW. I need to be a banker who drives a BMW. I go home, Hira, yes, honey. Guess what? I'm not going to drive the van anymore. I'm a banker. I'm going to buy a BMW. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. And she was adamant, no, you're not. She said, what are you thinking? We can't afford a BMW. What do you think you are? We can't afford it, and we've got kids coming. A little BMW is not going to fit our family. What's going on in your mind? And we went back and forth for like a month over this, over and over again. I'm getting that car. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Until finally, my wife decided, okay, God, evidently, he's not going to listen to me. But I'm pretty sure you can teach him a lesson. So I will let him do whatever he's going to do. God, he's your problem now. And so, I felt like I had the green light. I went and got a brand new BMW. Do you know what happened within six months? I hated that car. Absolutely hated the car. And I hated the fact I was driving in it. Because the more I kept thinking about it, not only could we not afford it, like my wife said, but not only that, it was giving me an image that I didn't want. And now I started to think, yeah, who do I think I am? Who, who am I? Who do I think I am that I need to be driving a BMW? I can't even afford it. Who am I trying to impress? What kind of an image am I trying to create here? I hate this car. I got to get rid of it. And after six months, it's exactly what I did. Ended up costing me more money to get rid of it but I felt wonderful inside when that car was gone. And I learned two things. Number one, God will chastise you when you do foolish things. Number two, always listen to your wife. Always. I think God has given us men the perfect wife who's got the wisdom that you need. And just before you're about to do the dumb thing, like all of us men do from time to time, Wife comes along with such beautiful wisdom, and it's up to us to listen to the counsel that God has given us through our wife. God, for those six months, he chastised me, and the only way out of it was to get rid of that car. 
get it out of my life. And never again did I think I need something like that in my life. There are other times where I don't know why. God may chastise me for reasons that I didn't even know I needed. Sometimes he may do things in your life and he'll want to press something out of your life. You know, there was a time in, a few years ago that there were a couple of people who were talking about me. Imagine that, Josephine, talking about me. But they had some not nice things to say about me and some, I don't know, complaints, if you will. And when I heard it, my immediate response was, who do they think they are? You know, what, uh, what are they talking about? And I began to maybe judge them and, and a little, be a little angry at them. And so as this went on, I had a visit one time with our senior pastor, Pastor Subekti. And so we were gathered at his house just talking one-on-one, -on -one, sharing some scripture, praying with each other. And I told him about this. I told him that some people were saying some things about me and I, I didn't really know how to take it. It's not true. I mean, it's whatever. It's gossip, but it's, it's still hurtful. He said, you know, he pointed to the marble tile in the room that we were in. He said, you know, this marble, this marble tile, do you know for marble to be what it is, it's got to go through extreme pressure. I mean, extreme pressure under the earth. The, the hot molten mass that it is, and then it goes through this extreme pressure. And in that pressuring, all the air is pushed out of this until it's formed into a solid block of marble. And then we chisel it out, we cut it out, we lay it on countertops, put it on floors. And Pastor Subekti said, without that crushing, without that pressing down, when we lay that tile down, if there are air bubbles inside, they'll crack. All that air has to be pushed out. Otherwise, the marble will not serve its purpose. And when he said that, I thought, Lord, you're pressing me. I don't know what you're squeezing out of me, but there's something that needs to go. And I believe you're using this situation to press my life. And when Pastor Subekti talked to me in that way, I said, God, press on. Press on. I can endure more. If that's all you've got for me, I can, I can get more. Just continue the pressing because whatever is in my life that doesn't belong, do what's necessary to press it out of my life. God does that. And there could be many other things that God may do. The Bible says if a husband is not being good to his wife, mistreating her, if they're not walking in faith together, husband, don't expect God to listen to you when you pray. Chastisement. The Bible also teaches that when you are walking in disobedience with God, God chastises you by allowing joy to be sapped out of your life. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but if you ever find out that you have been drifting from God, you've been walking in disobedience, at the same time you're saying to yourself, where's the joy that I used to have? Ah, when David sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery, murdered her husband, tried to cover it up, lied about things, and then finally the chastisement of the Lord had come. And when God chastised David for what he had done and what he was doing, David wrote Psalm 51. If you think about it later, read that whole psalm because it's beautiful. But in that psalm, David knows he's guilty. David knows he deserves the punishment and whatever chastisement you're going to do, God, I know I deserve it. But God, God, let it come from your loving kindness for me. Let it come from your tender mercies. Your chastising hand is about to fall upon me. But let it be ruled by the love that's in your heart for me. And in that same psalm, David repents. He confesses his sin to the Lord. And then he says, Lord... He says, renew my heart and help me to know the joy of my salvation again. Bring back the joy of my salvation. Because ever since I've been in sin, I don't know what it's like to be joyful. God, I come to you for healing. I come to you to be disciplined. And I return the joy of my life. And God did that. Verse 11 now no chastening 
seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What comes to you? What is cultivated from a God who cherishes you? What does he cultivate in your life through discipline? He yields, he produces peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, first of all, when you are in disobedience with God, you are in rebellion against God. So he'll discipline you, he'll bring things right again in your life, and you have peace again with God. Not only that, sometimes the things that we do interrupts peace between us and another brother or another sister. It interrupts peace between us and our parents or our siblings. But when the chastisement of the Lord comes, he can restore the peace in your church, in your family, in your company, your business, wherever. God wants to restore. And that brings us to the last. For whom the Lord loves, he cheers. He cheers. Look what this says. The last two verses. Therefore, knowing all this, God loves you. And because of love, he will chastise you only to cultivate. He cherishes you. He wants to produce something wonderful in you. So don't be discouraged, it says. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. In other words, when you're chastised by the Lord, just like I was in that car with my father, biting my lip, not wanting to show my tears, staring out the window, feeling all hanging down like this. The Bible says, lift up your hands. Stand up. Stand up straight. Fix your knees. Stand up. Keep on going. Don't be discouraged. Don't feel as though all is lost. God has done this for a reason and for a purpose. Now it's time. Get up on your feet and let's keep on moving. When it says strengthen the hands, that word strengthen means rebuild Renew. It's kind of like when you drive through the, the uh, Kotolama area of the city and you see a lot of run-down buildings, a lot of those Dutch buildings that are run down and walls that are broken down, blocks everywhere, paint that's tarnished or paint that's scraped away. You know what I'm talking about. But then somebody goes and renovates one of those buildings, builds a brand new restaurant out of it or a brand new perhaps museum or a cafe out of it what it means to take a, a battered building, a building that is falling apart and rebuild it again. It's what it means to strengthen the hands. This is what God wants to do. He wants to renew you, strengthen you, and build something new in your life. Don't hang down. Don't be discouraged. There was a man named Cain who was discouraged. God chastised Cain. Abel, his brother, brought a pleasing sacrifice, but God had no respect for Cain's offering because it wasn't what God had asked for. It wasn't the blood of sheep that God had demanded. And so because of that, the countenance of Cain fell. And God saw that. And God said, Cain, pick yourself up. Why are you so downcast? If you do what's right, if you listen to my discipline and chastisement, don't you know you'll be accepted? Don't let the sin rule over your life. Rule over the sin. Pick yourself up. But Cain refused. And in that sulking, he murdered his brother Abel. God does what he does for us out of love. And then once he has disciplined us, God is there to cheer us on, to shout, get up, let's go. Back to the race again. Let's run. Do you know, after I went through what I went through in the fifth grade with the chastisement of my father, I went from fifth grade and I barely passed the fifth grade. Believe me, barely passed. But when I went into the sixth grade, I wanted to do something new. And so I began to try. And my father said, Heath, you can do whatever you put your mind to. If you just try, you can do it. And so I did. First report card in sixth grade. 
Five B's, two A's. I had never seen grades like that in my life. And my dad said, good job. You got a B in math? I bet next time. Next report card, I bet you can bring that to an A. Next report card, I had, what was it? Four B's, three A's, including my math went from a B to an A. And my dad kept on cheering me on. I bet you can even do better than that. I bet you can make an honor roll every quarter of the school year. You know what happened by the end of the sixth grade? I made the honor roll every quarter. And I finished with four A's and three B's on my final averages for my report card. And not only that, when it came time for me to graduate the sixth grade, it was the same exact day that my sister was graduating high school. And we fell into a, a difficult situation. Who's going to go to my sister's high school graduation? Who's going to go to Heath's graduation? All the family, all the friends, all the people involved went to go see my sister. But my dad took me to my graduation. And he didn't just take me there. My dad was working for a Ford dealership at the time. And they let him borrow my favorite car in the world, the Ford Mustang. My dad picked me up at the house in a brand new Ford Mustang. And he brought me to school. And when I got there, all the kids said, where did you get that car? Where? How did you do that? And I said, don't worry, someday I'm going to have a BMW. No. But they brought, he brought me there in that Mustang. I'm there in graduation. I'm receiving awards. And I see my dad clapping for me. And through all of that, in the end of it all, my dad was there until the end, cheering me on. What began as a hand of chastisement became a hand of love and affection. And as I began to grow up in life, that same hand, when I would come to the altar for prayer, my dad, the pastor, would come and pray for people. And when that hand would touch me, I would cry. Because I knew this isn't just a man praying. This isn't just a pastor praying. But my father who loves me, who touches me with affection, he's praying for me. You know, I think my father has given me a wonderful example about who our Father is in heaven. Amen.